Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Would you like to learn from one of the coaches who is about to write his 75th book that comes out December 29th? David Clutterbuck is one of the earliest pioneers of developmental and coaching and mentoring and co-founder of the European Mentoring and Coaching Council, author of over 70 books, including his first evidence-based titles on coaching culture and team coaching. He is a visiting professor at four business schools, and he leads the global network of specializing mentoring and coaching training consultants, Coaching and Mentoring International. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome David Clutterbuck. It's a pleasure. Hey, hey, brother. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited to be here with you. Um, first of all, I'm just mind blown at how many books you've written. And you've uh, technically, you said you're going to be 75 years old and you've written your 75th book. Well, I'm how- 75. And yeah, this is the 75th book. So it's brilliant. That's if you don't count the children's stories. <laughs> how do you write so many books? Let's start off with that. We can go into the coaching space, but I really want to learn, like, what, what is your process like that allows you to write that many books? Because most people just struggle with one. I think it's because I started out as a journalist. Um, and as a journalist, I stumbled across coaching and mentoring. Uh, and I was lucky to have some very good mentors in my life who were role models uh, for, <clears throat> for being a journalist and for for. for, for being and, and being a thinker uh and i peter drucker was one of my mentors for a while for example he was one of the the great sage of, of, of uh, leadership um <clears throat> he's the one who who said um that when he was a journalist he thought that journalism was just badly done um uh academic research then he became an academic and he realized that academic research was just badly done journalism <laughs> yeah it's a mixed sense there's People have those titles that they get attached to on on like what they means for uh, for who they are. I know, for example, um, therapists and coaches, right? There's a little thing in between those two worlds that sometimes there's a bit of a conflict between the two. Sometimes uh, therapists don't want to be uh, in the same boat as coaches and, and vice versa because there's this identity around the issues. Have you experienced that at all from the coaching therapist route? To some extent, but I think a, a bigger movement is that many, many um, qualified psychologists and uh, and uh, become coaching psychologists because you can earn more money as a coaching psychologist than you can as a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, why is that? Why can you earn more money that way? I think it's largely because you're working more with executives and um, you're not working. Your focus is on people who are uh, at least functional. Mm. Um um, they may have all sorts of, 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 of issues, but, but they are they are reasonably functioning people who, who you're trying to help to, to grow um, and, uh, and achieve key things that they've identified. Um, mm. That could be anything from de- <clears throat> becoming more effective at running meetings to, to a, a radical transformation in their identity. Uh, so but whereas a therapist will really be working on things that you where you've got a real problem that's interfering some something in your psyche that is interfering with your ability to function as a human being. So instead of helping them go from an issue or a problem to normal, you're helping them go from good to great. And so in there has more opportunity for growth and revenue and whatever else might exactly. be preventing them from where they need to get to. What do you think is some of the common misconceptions about people inside of the coaching space or helping high performance people get to where they need to go? Well, I, I think 
there's a very narrow, a lot of narrow definition around what coaching is. Yeah. Um, a lot, lot of uh, misunderstandings too. But for me, it's very thin. <clears throat> if the whole thing about coaching is helping a few um, um, executives who are already a privileged elite um, to climb another you know, rung or two up the um, um, uh, up, up the ladder at the corporate ladder, um, it, it's much more important than that. It's it's and it's coaching has a tremendous potential for creating social good uh, in so many ways. And one of my projects at the moment is to get um, we, we've been work, working with uh, over the uh, development of materials <clears throat> for several years now, and we will, will be launch we're doing launching some uh, major academic tests uh, in Australia next year um, to try and get five million school age coaches and mentors to give people these skills of coaching mentoring right um, from the, from from that early age so that they can take better control of their own lives and helping other people. So, so, so that, so, you know, working with other people, helping other people with the quality of their thinking becomes just built into what they do as a human being. So you, when you're saying trying to get 5 million school age coaches, are you talking about uh, children or people under the age of 18 and giving them the ability to coach other people? Or are you talking about people that coach uh, young adults or people that are under the age of 18. Now, there's loads of programs for that <clears throat> where adults come along and, and help help children. And, and, and they're very, very valuable. There's, a, there's no doubt about that. Um, but kids listen to kids. Um, yeah. And um, we found that even as young as eight, kids can, can really get it faster than adults, actually. And in our materials, we've got a whole, <clears throat> a whole chapter on how to mentor your parents. Is this the new book you have coming out? Is 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 how to well, mentor your parents? It's a new, hand, it's a new handbook uh, that go that goes with the uh, uh, with the whole whole program that we're trying we're trying to uh, to launch. That's so interesting. You know, I've I've actually noticed that myself as well. Is I've done some coaching in the space. I do I do a lot of like virtual reality kind of coaching and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that when I was coaching younger adults, uh, they would then learn lessons and take it to their parents. And there's this weird juxtaposition that would happen as a parent, when all of a sudden the kid brings in insights that maybe the parent is aware, isn't aware of, which is a, a, I'm sure it's a weird paradigm shift for a parent. Absolutely. And it's, it's part, I think is part of a much wider global movement where intergenerational, intergenerational learning will become the norm. Um, Yeah. I I truly hope so. We're seeing so many examples of it. And for, for the kids to take their parents, into a virtual world um my, one of my favorite experiences in a virtual world is doing some coaching sitting on, on the edge of a giant um birthday cake floating above the amazon um with vertigo <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant um uh, and so you know um, i what i really need though because i struggle to get in there and do your work with all the technology i i need a a, a young one beside me just just in fact, well, I've got my my one of my sons who helps me um, with, with that. <clears throat> but you know, it's a uh, yeah. I think this this intergenerational learning yeah is something that we um, have undervalued, and we've always seen it being one way. Yeah, you know, from older people to young younger people, um, and particularly in the states, <clears throat> when we talk about mentoring as mm. opposed to coaching, um, there's there's been this assumption that it's always from, from older to senior. Uh, so older and senior to to to, to younger and more junior, um, and we're seeing a radical change around this. We have uh, 
some fascinating work at the moment um, <clears throat> between junior people in organizations who come from uh, a black and minority ethnic background. Um, 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 and I know that, I, I never know we, it, it, across the world, when you when you when you use those term those ter those terminology in some countries that's going to be the right terminology in others it's going to be the wrong so if if it's the wrong terminology for anybody's for any particular person's uh, person's national um, culture um, th what the intention is that somebody who comes from um, a disadvantaged group yeah in, in society um, <clears throat> and what we've been doing is to linking them with a very senior person typically from the majority privileged culture. Um, and we've had this reverse mentoring for many years, but reverse mentoring simply links one person from below with one person from above. And the person from above gets to understand what the world looks like a bit through the eyes of somebody who, 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 from, from, from a different background. Yeah. <clears throat> and the, the more junior person gets to understand the corporate politics and a little bit about how they can manage their own career, uh, uh, working the system as it is. What That's we're now seeing is reciprocal mentoring is replacing reverse mentoring. So reciprocal mentoring is where the, the junior person, the senior person <clears throat> come together. They share each other's realities. And then together they say, how can we change the systems that create inequality and discrimination? And then you bring together all these pairs so that to, to, to tackle the issues from above and below at the same time. Mm. And this is a, a wonderful, powerful movement that we're just seeing beginning to take off. How does that relate to, you're talking about 5 million students that you're trying to get to mentor each other, right? So your kids mentoring other kids on what that looks like. Is there a whole paradigm that let, that is associated with that where you're having parents and kids or cross-generational or cross-advantages um, being able to work together? How does that relate to each other with those yeah. two movements? Well, ultimately, <clears throat> those kids are going to be a, be very good and effective upward mentors. Um, for, but and, event, and eventually, they'll become very good people, um, senior people in their own right, and this whole chain will, will change. So mm. it's about having mentoring and coaching as critical parts of everybody's continuous development all the way through, <clears throat> from fairly young age, all the way through to... Um, in, into into adulthood, into into being a parent, into <clears throat> things like people coming out of jail, <clears throat> all the way through to retirement. Um, and we've even um, years ago we found some examples um, of people mentoring others into death or terminal mentoring. Wow! <clears throat> yeah, that's incredibly it, intense. That 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 is. You don't have to have been there before, though. <laughs> just helping well okay so look look at these pieces what is the mindset of a coach what is it what do they need to put themselves into how do they how do they mentally prep and prime themselves to be in that coaching or mentoring mindset well maybe we should start by saying what's the difference between coaching and mentoring sure um, because the mindsets are very similar um in that the primary objective is to have a conversation with somebody that enables them to improve the quality of their thinking. And if you um, if you think about that in terms of, um, of, of of clarity around who you are, what your ambitions are, your fears, your aspirations, your strengths, your weaknesses, your values, <clears throat> becoming really aware of all that stuff 
um, helps you to ground decisions on that you make on 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 pretty firm on pretty firm basis. But then there's all the stuff outside. So who are your champions? Um, what's what is actually changing in the technology around you? Where are the opportunities going to be? Um, <clears throat> what's happening in them? How do you understand how other people are behaving? For example, the motivations, and the systems around you. And so that's the external perspective. What both mentoring and coaching do <clears throat> is to is to uh, bring, great create clarity in that internal conversation and that external context. Then you bring them together, and once you've got clarity in those two contexts, you can make much better decisions. You can see your path forward so much more easily. Now, <clears throat> if you are a coach, you are primarily focusing on focusing on what do you want to achieve. And you're going to be primarily working on uh, that internal context. Got it. But of course, with some on the external, it's how the individual sees the external context. If you are a mentor, you're, you, you will typically have had a lot more experience that you can bring to bear to give parable, anecdote, story, ask, uh, empathize more with the situation that person's in. Um, ask deeper questions uh, because you can, because you've got that experience to draw upon. Um, and so what the difference, the primary difference is that mentors <clears throat> spend more time helping the person think about their external uh, uh, environment and, and slightly less on the internal because they can. Got it. Yep. Um, so, so what it sounds like to me, if I were to reflect back to you is here's what I'm hearing. A mentor is someone who's already done it. And they're they are guiding a path for say, hey, follow these breadcrumbs to kind of get to where you need to go because I've gone on this trail and these are ways that you could go. And so you're mentoring them on how to get there versus a coach may or may not have actually been there before. But what they help you on is they help you mentally model your internal landscapes to understand what roadblocks are stopping you from achieving your goals. And they work with you through that internal landscape together. Whether or not they've been there or not, they are better at helping you reflect inwards and understand the landscape not that they've actually been there but they can just help you recognize what gaps you have in your mindset to help you take action and get you to where you want to go so yes but it's i mean obviously it's not that nice and neat and clean sure sure i'm i'm sure there's variables all all the way in between so what looking at that from that perspective then is what do you think are some of the the common you're talking about misconceptions now some of the common misconceptions people have when they when they when they go into coaching what are some of the the typical pitfalls that they make when they when they start to get going in coaching um, well one of the first things is that you start you you start off as a coach thinking about you've got a project you you've got to follow a model yeah you there's a pathway to do this um and the sooner you get rid of that idea the better um um, but you, if, if you're, if you, if I, I compare it with teaching a child to ride a bicycle. Yeah, <clears throat> they're three years old. They've got their first bike, and he's got, <coughs> pardon me, he's got stabilizers on it because otherwise they're going to fall off. And so, um, gradually they they learn to be more confident, and they get a bit of speed up and so forth. So you take one of the stabilizers off. 
And that's the point at which they move from doing coaching to somebody to going coaching with somebody. Mm. But then you take the other stabilizer off and they can they can get a bit more speed um, and um, uh, and they and, and they're starting now to, to be on their own. They don't need you. You might start off by holding the, the saddle at the back while they get get going. But, you know, they'll have a couple of tumbles, but they're, they're, they're away. And, and, and that's when you start to integrate what you do as a coach with who you are as a human being. So mm. this is where, all, all, in, 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 in mentoring terms, the, the whole point of wisdom comes in. You, you use more and more of yourself. <clears throat> then you get to the what we call the systemic eclectic. And that's, where, and that's more akin to the, the guy riding the racing cycle in the Olympics. Um, uh, and what, what he or she is doing is we describe as holding the client while the client has the conversation that they need to have with themselves. So they do less. <clears throat> they, um, they let go of more. Mm. Um, and um, their focus is on the conversation, not on, not on following a process. In fact, most of those models that you see, like coaches are very get taught the grow model, uh, uh, goals, reality, options, and will. I usually say it stands for get rich on waffle um, because it it doesn't actually work except except for very simple issues. And mm. one of the big things there, the big myths there, is that you know the starting point, the, the client has got to have a goal. Well. There's no evidence for that. Um, <clears throat> the goal may be the outcome of the, of the coaching. People typically come, or frequently come to, co to coaching with a, a sense of, 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 I know there's an issue here. I can't quite define it. <clears throat> so we're helping them get clarity. <clears throat> if you try and force them, like, what's your goal? Um, you've now put them into an artificial place. And they're pursuing the wrong thing fast. A study uh, at Harvard, to Harvard found um, that of 200 coaches, 192 who experienced coaches said, if the coaching's any good, the goal that the client has will be different, uh, or will, will evolve and be different um, part of the way through. Got it. So it's adaptive. It's like precision coaching, same way there's precision medicine. And it almost sounds like to me when you're first talking about this, anytime you start to learn something, let's just say cooking, for example, maybe you don't know how to cook. You, you can't even make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? So you need some sort of framework. You need a guide. You go, okay, I have peanut butter. I have jelly. I have bread. I, I you know, follow these steps and now I have my sandwich. But then over time, you throw that out the door and, they, and because you get so many of these frameworks and they're so ingrained into you that you can just naturally intuitively kind of pick and choose and blend them together to suit the person's need, depending on what they eat or what they need. For example, like a Gordon Ramsay, someone that understands what you need and they kind of hear what you're interested in and they can go in the kitchen intuitively just because they've been able to absorb it. And now they become one with the, with the message or the food that they're delivering. Absolutely. And, and, it, it, and they, the great thing is they have all these tools and techniques, Yeah, but they use fewer. <laughs> they, they just <clears throat> relax into the conversation. The conversation is king um, and they say less. Um, but the energy is in, 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 in the room is not in the coach or the coachee. It's in, the, it's in between them. Mm. Um, uh, and so um, 
it, it's very much a sen- um, a, a whole process of maturing is is all about letting go. Yeah, letting go <clears throat> of the goals, letting go of the need for the client to have a solution in the session. Actually, most of the time when coaching works well, the client finds the solution by reflecting afterwards. It's what happens after the session <clears throat> that really matters. Um, but, you know, we feel that beginner coaches feel I did, they, we didn't come out with a, with a nice, neat, clear solution. <clears throat> Great. What if, if you if the client has come out of it with a nice, deep question to go away and think about, that's much more valuable for them. Mm. So it's, it's better to leave them with a quest, a question than than to actually say, hey, here's the answer and spoon feed it to them. And one of the things I always reflect of in terms of like life being a game is that every quest starts with a question. Yeah. And so when you come out with that and they have that question, they will then go hunt that down. When you're giving, when you're coaching or people are setting up structures, what is a cadence for that? What is a good cadence? What I mean by that is, you know, should people be coached every single day by five different people? Should they be once a week, once a month? What does that look like? And if, if you could set up the perfect coaching environment for somebody, what does that look like? It's, everybody's unique. Everybody's okay. different in what they need. Sure. <clears throat> so for me, the perfect environment is when somebody is able to work out in their own head what is it that I really want to, 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 to think through in more depth and then come to their, to their coach and continue that, um, that internal dialogue, <clears throat> but in greater depth. Um, yeah. and then you get you, the, the cadence that you might have is right. I need, I've got things I need to think about that I can start doing something about. I'll come back to you when I, when I've got to the next stage, when I'm feeling stuck again. Mm. So, I mean, artificial, we have to have artificial ways of doing these things because companies, when they're paying for coaches, for example, um, will say, right, you do six sessions over eight months. And, you know, so you've got to have a rhythm like that. Doesn't necessarily fit the learning pattern of the client. Got it. Because some are more voracious learners and they go quickly apply it. Whether ones may need, need, need time to marinate and figure it out. So, you know, six sessions someone might do in two weeks versus someone might do in a couple months. But we're talking about it just depends on when do they hit that roadblock and when are they not able to take that next step forward. And that's one of the things I think is very interesting with this is sometimes uh, mentees, coaches, the people that are students that are going through this process, they may recognize the issue with the coach. They understand maybe the action they need to take, but they have troubles taking that action when they're off by themselves. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They have to actually accomplish whatever action or activities or habit needs to make this happen. Do you have any advice around helping them take that action when they're not staring at the face of the coach? Well, one of the things, the big difference is, one of the things we see more often in mentoring than yes. coaching, <clears throat> but I think should be incorporated much more into coaching, is what's called the Pygmalion effect. So what that means in, in the Pygmalion effect, <clears throat> you... Um, the degree of the belief of the other person in what you can you can achieve has a significant positive motivational effect, uh, effect on your on your on your on how much you stretch yourself to do it. Oh. 
So if the coach believes more in what the student can do, then the student will naturally strive to achieve more because they've more or less kind of outsourced their belief in themselves. Yeah, but many coaches don't see that as part of their role, whereas mentors typically do see it as part of their role. Um, now, I think both, both, both should. Beautiful, beautiful. So then part of the solution to that is having deep-seated belief that the person the student will be able to achieve the results on their own, thereby giving them the, the outsourced belief that they can do it and they will take that action. Yeah. yeah. It's like in sports, <clears throat> you know, kick, um, any, any, any young sports person. Yeah. If they've got a coach who really sees, uh, you know, sees they have talent and, and gives them real encouragement, <clears throat> um, they'll, they'll perform for that person. Mm. Well then let's talk about this. What about in terms of key critical conversations? I, I know you had a, a book written, one of your many books. I think it was like five critical conversations. What are some key critical conversations that's, that a coach or a mentor needs to have with somebody as they're, as they're guiding them through these difficult times? The, the conversations that actually happen mm-hmm. tend to be many of them are silent conversations Mm -hmm. Um, and we we can have you know as people grow a lot of the transitions um or the conversations that we have with people um relate to where they are in transitions so you might be trying to work out where you want to go to um or you might have already worked out where you want to go to but you don't know how for example um so the starting point is always where has the person got to in their thinking so far so that's all about the conversations that they've had before they actually come to coaching or mentoring Mm. and way before uh, the grow model came along we've been doing research into personal reflective space um and this is the the how we on our own as individuals have the conversation with ourselves so what happens is we start off by uh, finding a quiet space where we can actually think and we're not being interrupted by the people or phones or all the rest of it Um, and we allow ourselves to frame an issue that's been worrying us we call them SUI significant unresolved issues we all have too many of them Um, one of them comes to dominate our thinking for a while we we dig into that. We, we we ask ourselves, why is it important now and not last week? Or you know, um, who's involved with this? Uh, what's at stake here, and so forth. And that leads us to a whole bunch of implications. Say, well, what? You know, who could I ask for help in this one, etc. And we go round and round, and eventually we hit a point of insight. We have a bingo moment. Um, and after that sudden understanding and we see it differently we can now reframe it because the, the, the it's changed in nature as an issue mm-hmm. that gives us different ways of thinking about things and then then we want to do something we want to action intriguingly if you are if you do your reflection when you're out walking most people report that they uh, they slow down the closer they get to um to insight ah uh. <clears throat> Yes. And there's two explanations for this. Um, and 
Um, neither of them is, has been fully <coughs> empirically tested. But um, one explanation is that your brain just forgets to tell, to tell your feet to walk uh, because it's so preoccupied with what you're doing. <coughs> thinking. The other is actually um, that the, um, the brain takes a lot of sugar from your, from your blood. And, if, and when, it's, when it's working overtime, it'll take more sugar which means mm. that sugar isn't there to go to your limbs. That's interesting. I've noticed something similar when I'm driving and telling a story that's very specifically, if I'm trying to tell a story and I'm making a turn, I'm turning left or turning right, my brain's trying to calculate the turn. And when my brain's trying to calculate the turn, my story shuts off. So anytime I'm trying to tell a complicated story, if I'm not an autopilot, I, I it goes away. And so it's the reverse of what you're talking about, that situation. And what's what's interesting about that, yeah, is it seems like it might occupy like the same areas of the brain for some degree, for whatever reason it is, and then all of a sudden it shuts down. That's that's high that's highly likely. It's one of the things, you know, one of the many neuroscience uh, experiments to do. <clears throat> there was a piece of research a few years ago that looked at people going into these uh, these thinking states um, when they're driving. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an American study. <clears throat> and um, it found that, mo that uh, more, roughly two-thirds of people report, both male and female, reported doing this. Um, and you'd have things like you'd be, you'd be, you'd, you'd set off from home and you'd be going somewhere not, you wouldn't be going to the office, you'd be going somewhere else. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, and then you suddenly, you, you suddenly wake up when you, when you're actually driving through the, the into the parking <laughs> lot at the office. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, we, 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 we all do this, but what they concluded was that the, um, you, we, you, you've obviously got to be, to be safe to drive. You've got to be aware yeah. what's in front of you. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I, I've noticed that, by the way, in terms of poor poor habits on my side of things, I've noticed one of the things I've noticed is if I'm doing something and I'm thinking about that, I'm having conversations, I'll pull into like a Starbucks or someplace I don't normally like I'm I'm trying to avoid to be healthier or whatever. And I notice that like my base desires will pull me into a more comfortable place. Like I'm having something difficult happen and I and I and I'll steer into a place where I'm not necessarily I'm not gonna have fast food and I pull into a McDonald's or something and I'm like whoa 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 it's like this subconsciousness is sneaking by trying to seek some sort of comfort or something it's very weird but something I did notice happen <laughs> well what this research suggested uh, yeah. was that you you are conscious of what's in front of you yeah yeah keeping the distance from the cars in front <laughs> but you have absolutely no idea what's to the side of you or behind you including that cop car. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, just, you, can, you, can only, you can only be present to one situation at a time and yeah. other things will sneak by. What do you, let me ask you this. In terms of, I mean, you've been in the space, the coaching space uh, for a little while, right? And you've uh, uh, put a lot of time in this. And what is your holy grail? Like, what, what about all this? You put in 75 books, all this time, all this energy, these committees, all this stuff. Why do you put in all this energy? What is the flag in the sand you hope to achieve by putting all of this effort in this space? I, I think we talk about the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Mm -hmm. I don't know, for a variety of countries, certainly in the, in the UK we do. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think in the States too. Um, uh, and I think we should be adding a fourth R, which is reflection. 
the ability to reflect. Um, and <clears throat> it's a skill which yeah. we don't teach kids in school at the moment. And yet um, we find that particularly in, a, in the current digital world, people have less and less time to think. They're too busy doing things, going to meetings, sitting on Zoom. Um, <clears throat> and um, the time to actually have reflection either on your own or with other people is important, is, is critical. Mm. Now, talking to some um, of the people working in, in, the, in, in the digital coaching space, one of the um, suggestions is that um, in a decade or more, we'll all actually have an AI that will that we will um, that, that will take us there. Remind it's time for your reflection for, for your um, time for your afternoon reflection, and we'll take you there and sit like a coach and help you work through through your afternoon reflections and ask you the kind of questions and, and so forth. Um, it's I, I, it's not too fanciful an idea. Um, but building in building in reflection is part of it. The other side of this is 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 the product of reflection is wisdom. And whereas coaching is much has is much more associated with doing, men, mentoring is much more um, associated with deeper thinking and with and with wisdom. And I, and I define mm. three kinds of wisdom. You've got skinny wisdom, which is being an expert in a particular topic. Then you've got broad wisdom, which is being an expert in life. I mean, you know, you've been there, you experience things. <clears throat> um, you can draw upon those experiences, both your own and vicarious experience. And then there's meta wisdom. It's the ability to draw together strands from all over the place. Mm. Um, that actually enable new meaning and new 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 sense making to occur yeah. in yourself and in others, and that's really where we're heading with it to to create a wiser world. Yeah, yeah. That that I mean, one of the superpowers of mankind is that pattern recognition. What you're talking about, being able to find the unseen dots that connect and be able to make those those unusual connections. That's that's fantastic. What if this to create a wiser world sounds like is at the genesis of all of this? What is the dragon? Like, what is the thing that is so difficult to overcome that you or we or the world needs to change in order to get there? Um, if I were glib, I would say human stupidity. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> we did this i did um but it's it's more than that it's a it's a lack of systemic thinking is one of the key things i i did a study um 15 years ago and my research question was if everything that um uh human resources does in terms of talent management and succession planning works how come the wrong people so often get to the top and <clears throat> it was a great piece of research it was great fun um and the conclusion was absolutely crystal clear most of the stuff doesn't work it's applying linear thinking to 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 um, a system which is a complex adaptive system the relationship between people and organizations is a complex adaptive system mm -hmm. so why are we applying linear processes to it um 
and half the stuff that HR has, like nine box grids. Complete waste of time as they're used. Um, uh, as means of judgment of people, um, performance appraisals as they're normally done. Yeah, don't take it, not, not a systemic process. Uh, they don't they don't address the person in their system and so forth. We don't teach systemic thinking at school either. We don't really teach systemic thinking in, 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 in the workplace, which means that we have um, leaders, both political and, um, uh, and, and, and in business, who basically aren't up to the, up to the role. We, they can be educated in many cases, but they're not being educated. We just did a, um, a piece of research this year for the conference board. Um, and we had focus groups um, with HR directors, primarily from across Europe. Um, <coughs> many, excuse me. <coughs> many of them from large American and, and North American uh, uh, countries mm -hmm. or companies. And two things really struck me there about what they were saying about, about post-COVID leadership, which is what we were looking at. And what, one of those was that so many leaders um, were unable to go back to the were, to, were, were to, to embrace the new world of collaborative leadership. They wanted to go back to command and control. They were nostalgic for pre-COVID um, types of managing, <clears throat> and hence the great the great resign. Um, it's um, uh, so that was one thing they could not actually uh, they didn't have the confidence in themselves to be vulnerable for example and the second thing that came across is they were not able to think systemically mm. so it's it's both of those issues that makes a ton of sense because one piece of it is trying to fix a short-term thinking with a long-term complex problem thus not actually really thinking deeply through the thing, not having the reflection needed to get you what you need to do. Say, how deep does this go? Not just solving the, the, the superficial issue, but the systemic root cause of the issue. And the other one being is in order to actually create this effective change in an organization, needing to be vulnerable and being willing to change yourself in order to create the organizational change you want. And so both those things kind of extend on top of each other because with businesses, a lot of times the entrepreneur or the CEO is his, his nervous system is a microcosm of the business, right? So anything that he can't do, his limiting things, it can no longer affect the business. He can't get that change because he can't do it with himself. Yeah. And That's you know, this is this is crazy notion. I, I like asking very senior execs, um, so tell me about your career. Um, so um when you started out, um what did you do? And they explained, <clears throat> I said, you make mistakes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you learn from your mistakes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. So, how much time do you think of you? How much of your time do you think you're in, in learning mode? Well, probably 40, 50% of the time. Yeah. Great. So, tell me about now. Um, how much of your time are you in, in learning mode? I haven't got time for all of that stuff. You know, I mean, if I pick it up, it's like, oh, <laughs> tell me about the cost of your mistakes. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, 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 it's, it really is scary. 
the higher the more the more senior we become the more time we should spend in learning and less time in doing stuff yeah yeah because yeah. the decisions matter even more at the top yeah wow. i've seen so many organizations say we want to create a learning organization but it only applies to them down there <laughs> <laughs> i did it i'm done no more <laughs> oh that's I'm so perfect. beautiful i'm perfect as i am yes yeah. that's beautiful so uh Question for you in this. So, the, I mean, this has been, been an absolute amazing podcast. Um, you have a, a book coming out soon. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and anything else that's top of mind for you? Okay. Well, <clears throat> I've been in this game for um, a good 45 years now, mm-hmm. um, right from the beginning. Um, and um, the, uh, and, and I've basically been involved in coaching, in mentoring. I, I uh, in communications, I had one of the first um, communications communications boutiques or employee communications boutiques in the UK. Uh, the only survivor of the Great Crash at the end of the 1990s, um, uh, and uh, and 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 in corporate government, I've worked in corporate governance <coughs> and so forth. So there's a whole load of themes here and leadership, of course, um, uh, and all of those in each one of those areas. We've seen a radical transformation of our understanding of the dynamics of, of that. Um, we've, you know, coaching, coaching, coaching when it, when, <clears throat> when it started was a very, very directed form of form of instruction. It was, it was basically, <clears throat> it was, it was um, tuition. It was tell, tell you, I'll show you what to do now. You do it. It was the primary rule of, of, of coaching. And it's only become modern coaching which is which is seen to be non-directive um uh, or relatively so um in uh in, in the mid 19s late 1990s to late 1990s um and and, and mentoring um mentoring has been much more consistent um, there's been there's been this um a, a, a myth put about in in the 1990s by a bunch of cons- by consultants who were trying to um, or coaches who were trying to carve out a niche for themselves um um, and seeing all these people doing doing what the same what they wanted to do and charge money for, but they were doing it for free. So they basically our mentors they 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 give you advice. It's never never been true in the in the history of, of mentoring. Um, <laughs> mentors give you context. They give you story. You give somebody context, you help them to think better. Mm. Give somebody advice, you're doing the thinking for them. And one of the examples I like to give. Was um, um, my, one of my mentors, first mentors at work. Uh, I worked for McGraw Hill, and um, I, I he took me aside. Uh, I was about 23, 24 then. <clears throat> he took me aside and said, "David, just uh, just got just got a, 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 um, a suggestion. Go around the company <clears throat> and look at all the managers and see what you notice about the managers." Um, fine. So we came back and a week later and he said, well, what did you notice? I said, well, I didn't see anybody else um, who like who, who was like me with long hair down to my below my shoulders and a droopy moustache. <laughs> and he said, yeah, OK, it's up to you what you do with that information. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got a haircut, um, yeah, um, a smarter suit, smarter suit and got promoted about, about two months later. Um, it was you know, that's that that for me is the essence of a of a great mentor. They they never tell you what to do. 
they open up the realm of the possibilities to you by creating that that clarity so in all of these areas we in the book we're looking at the development from the beginning the middle and 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 more recent developments so and and a little bit of a look to the future. Where are we going with all this? Yeah. So the the book is about creating context for people to understand where we're going with all of this. I think it's more as as much as that is where we come from. Because mm. mm. most most coaches, <clears throat> probably eighty percent of coaches in the world. I've only qualified in the last 15 years or less. So their understanding of the history of all this um, is, 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 is much, is, is, we wanted to give them a sense of, of where it's all come from and how, it, how it's developed. Most mm. people don't know that the word coach um, um, only dates from the, from the mid-1850s when, when it was a joke. I don't know that. Uh, yeah. Um, and it was in the novels of, Tha- of Thackeray, the um, novel called Pendennis about um, a bunch of um, university students who um, basically uh, needed, a tu- needed a tutor, which they called a coach, because it, that this was somebody to transport them in luxury through their exams. <laughs> basically, they hadn't done any work. They'd spent the entire two years at university, <clears throat> as it was then, getting drunk and getting laid. And then suddenly they needed somebody to help them get through the through the exams. And there, there we are. There's, there's, there's your coach. <laughs> um, so, so at least we know not much has changed in college. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yes. Well, that's beautiful. Um, Dave, it's been absolutely an honor to come you on the show. If people want to uh, find you or find your books, how do they do this? Well, my my uh, website is uh, Clutterbuck hyphen CMI. Um, and uh, that can be easily found. Um, Amazon has loads of the books. Um, and please do connect with me on LinkedIn. You'll find me very easily on on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, um, I I enjoy um, adding people to um to, who are serious learners <laughs> to my to my uh, uh, to my LinkedIn in, in uh, uh, groups because uh, basically that's that's really that's the legacy that I want to leave. Mm. Um, and uh, I still think I've got a lot, of, a lot of learning to do myself as, long, as well as a lot of helping other people learn. Absolutely. Creating a wiser world. Thank you, David. I appreciate your time. It's an honor and pleasure, my friend, and I'll see you on the other side. Thank you. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes or to apply to be on the show. If you're interested about becoming a coach in VR, check out Dylan's Becoming a Master Coach in Virtual Reality course at heroesofreality.com slash VR coach. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.